Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but not it a, is. But it is. It, it is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams. Other than a Viewmaster, you download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. Yeah. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. This is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious something or experts. Yes, the Trexperts. Well, no, yes. because you know what? I'm confused because we're not really Trexperts today. We're Space 1999 Spurts. And it doesn't have the same ring. <laughs> that doesn't really you know, have the same This is such an uh, this is such an incredible undertaking that that we needed somebody worthy of the task. So we've roped in one of one of the, 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 the biggest experts and, uh, in Space 1999 and uh, fans. And uh, we're so happy to have him back on loan from the Burnett work. It's Robert Meyer Burnett. Welcome I, back. You know what? I, I'm so happy to be here. I can't believe that you, you brought me on to this particular episode. As you know, I've been buying uh, uh, the new 
<laughs> all the new 1999 toys. You know, I, I can't get enough. And uh, I've really had space 1999 on the brain. So when you, you actually, you actually, it was a query. You're like, would you be interested? I'm like, yes, yes, I would. <laughs> well, <laughs> not you. everybody would, you know, space <laughs> 1999 is an acquired taste and obviously there's a you know particularly among star trek fans there's not a lot of love for it and i think you know we've said this and i say it on the podcast this is a show that celebrates the love much like the ewoks and so we did that for trek so let's try and look at what's great about space 1999 we mm. come to praise it not to bury it so rob when did you first sort of discover space 1999 you know, when it when it first aired, I want to say, I think it, it originally aired, it was a 75, 76 show, but we didn't get it till 76, maybe, yeah. in the U.S. And I remember it was a big deal. Like, it was something I was really excited about. I mean, 1976, Logan's Run had come out that year. I was obviously, I was in the thralls of loving Star Trek because I discovered it in syndication, along with, I think, the two of you. And we, we, we'd had the animated series. So Space 1999 was following very quickly on the heels of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, seeing the design work, of course, like any, any other kid at the time, seeing the Eagles. But I remember, I really remember that first episode, seeing Breakaway for yeah. the first time. It left a huge, huge impression on me because you were on the surface of the moon at the beginning and you know they used slow motion as the as the astronauts were walking and it looks so authentic i'm like wow did they really shoot this on the moon i mean this looks so real and are you saying the metaprobe should not be launched what i am saying is that the backup crew appears to be medically fit but as a doctor because of the unknown factors i can't guarantee that they won't be affected three days or three months out into deep space and you're saying medically the risk is unacceptable. The risk is great. The decision, of course, is yours. I, I, I loved everything about that first episode because as a kid, you've got cool spaceships and they crash and blow up and there's a there's a there's alan carter and there's a space station halfway between the earth and the moon that gets destroyed and and then the entire nuclear waste dump goes up and it's a, the biggest explosion i'd ever seen on tv before and i love the theme it was just so exciting and then you were you were just sucked in one and of the things i always loved about Space 1999, where the main titles, where they would flash this episode, this episode, right? And I, I have to say, you know, Battlestar Galactica, the new version, did something very similar. So I was interviewing, it was at New York Comic Con, I was doing a, a masterclass with Ron Moore. And I said, you know, I'm going to ask him, but I know what the answer is. There's no way he was influenced by Space 1999. I said, Ron, I said, I got to ask you, you know, was the beginning, your credits for Battlestar Galactica at all influenced by Space 1999? And he goes, as a matter of fact, yes, we totally ripped it off. <laughs> and I was like, wow. He just thought it was so cool. And, you know, it's, it, 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 you know, and this was right as all these big credit sequence were going by the wayside. People were changing them to just a card because they were afraid they would lose an audience. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the way that they would do a real credit sequence is to show all the cool stuff that was going to happen right. in the episode. So you wouldn't change the channel. So it became, which was, it became a game trying to find out all those clips that they had showed you and find out where they fit in the episode. Yeah, to totally. And Darren, how did you first come across space 1999? Well, actually I first came across it. Uh, there was a, sort of a, a, a collector's magazine that had, uh, 
that they uh, that they made at around the same time. I think this was in late '75. Um, but had this gorgeous color uh, cover of uh, that main painting that they used uh, to advertise the coming of the show uh, with uh, Landau standing there with the, with the gun and uh, Barbara Bain standing behind him and Barry Morse also on the surface of the moon with an eagle going uh, over. Um, but I was so enthralled by this painting and this magazine um, that I was, you know, raring to go when the, when the show came on. And the second thing that influenced me uh, as the show was going on, Power Records on the East Coast released a big LP of their recreations, basically, of the stories from the show. And they had three episodes. They had Breakaway, they had Death's Other Dominion, and they had um, uh, Mission of the Darians. And, but with a completely different cast doing an audio version of the episodes. Right. Mm-hmm. And I must have listened to that 50 times. I, I memorized all three of those episodes <laughs> while only have, you know, probably have seen them once or twice. So when I w- would see those episodes again, I wasn't remembering the episodes. I was remembering the record. So huh. I, was, I was completely engaged in a completely different manner than one usually is to a TV show. But uh, that's really I, interesting. You know, I When did you see it, Mark? It. Well, I, I you know, I remember very vividly that it was on Saturdays at five o'clock on Channel 11, right before Star Trek. Right. So um, I would watch it. Basically, it was the pregame show. It was the appetizer for Star <laughs> Trek. And, you know, I never loved Space 1999, but I always enjoyed it. My good friend, yeah. Stephen Simak, he actually preferred Space 1999 to Star Trek. And I used to give him a lot of shit about that. I'm like, how oh, do you like Space 1999 more than Star Trek? <laughs> but I do remember when Starlog number two came out with yeah. Star with Space. I was so excited. It was a beautiful painting yeah. uh, on the cover of Starlog. And I did. I tried to love it. And I only ever liked it. But yeah. I love the Eagles, and we'll we'll yeah. talk about that. And um, and then you know I rediscovered it recently. It was playing. It, it's available for those of you who aren't familiar with the show or aren't on a lot of streaming channels. Like um, actually, when we premiered, uh, the Electric Now channel premiered on on Stir. I realized they had a Space 1999 tier, and I started watching it on Stir. And I think it was also on on uh, uh, you know on, on so it was the Space 99 channel. And I started watching them, and I was really getting into it. And that was right about the time that Shout Factory came out with that magnificent Blu-ray set, right. uh, which uh, then it was stunning. And I actually was watching them fairly religiously, including the bonus material, and um, and 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 really got back into Space 1999. And and that was sort of. The root of my fascination. I'm thinking, oh, this would be an interesting episode of Trexperts because I remember at the time there was that famous, um, I think it was in Q Magazine, New York Magazine, uh, where it was Space 99 and Star Trek, which they they, they had them squaring off. It was like yeah. Space 99 versus Star Trek, and they had like um like a Hirschfeld drawing of Martin Landau and or Shatner, you know, like sort of squaring <laughs> off. And 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 so. Um, I, you know, I, it was always that paradigm of Star Trek versus Space 1999. And I thought, oh, this, you know, it would be interesting to explore this on Trexperts and sort of revisit it. And so then the question was, who do we get? You know, we're going to get Barbara Bain, you know, in England. I don't think so. I don't think she's going to have anything interesting to say. You know, uh, Rob and I auditioned Juliet Landau for Free Enterprise many years ago. One of my favorite moments was when she spotted the commander koenig action figure on rob's uh, bookshelf behind him as we auditioned her he said 
oh my god that's my dad <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so um I, I you know we we had to find the right guest and i think we totally did and um author john kenneth muir who wrote the book exploring space 1999 very erudite very prolific author about a lot of science fiction pop culture um, and this is a book he published about 20 years ago for McFarland. It's still in print, I think, on Kindle. And um, he seemed like the right guy to put it in a context that would be appropriate to show. And I don't think our audience will be disappointed. I think it's a real great episode. And now joining us to talk Space 1999 on the Ultimate Star Trek podcast is John Kenneth Muir, author of Exploring Space 1999. We've talked about some of his many other books. Um, and so, Rob, no talking about Sam Raimi. And Spinal Tap and uh, Battlestar Galactica and all the other great stuff that no. John has chronicled. Today, we're here to talk about Space 1999. I, I'm a big fan of his. It's a great honor to, to meet you, sir. I, I have your book. Uh, I have read it many, many times. And um, as you know, I'm, I'm big. I've shown you Commissioner Simmons. Simmons is still not yet back to Earth. Poor guy. But I'm, it's great to be here. You all are amazing, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm honored to be with uh, this distinguished group. Very well, you much. You know, John, what I, I love about your book, you know, when I first set out, I've been talking for over a year about wanting to do a Space 1999 uh, episode of Trexperts, and everybody's always saying to me, why, why? And I, I thought it would be interesting because, of course, most people look at it as the show that kind of ripped off Star Trek, but your book is really a stunning indictment of that kind of short-sighted analysis of Space 1999. You really um, make the case that it's unlike any other show in the 1970s, um, that it's a show that examines the strange and weirdness of space, which no Star Trek had done. And one of the few science fiction shows to not rip off the template of star trek you know sort of a crew on a ship or a space station that's exploring and there's some kind of earth galactic earth united earth uh organization like the federation i thought that was really interesting and of course in addition to exploring space 1999 you also wrote um a, a novel you wrote the forsaken if i'm not mistaken i mean maybe i'm just crazy but it feels like space 1999 a lot of people don't know what it is but a lot of people who do it's very much in vogue now. There are a lot of new toys, and um, this, they're coming out with the uh, the hand laser, the staple gun, and the comlink. And uh, Rob has a ton of stuff over there, and uh, it just seems like there's a little bit of a renaissance for space. I, I hate to correct a fellow Trexpert, but uh, comlock. The comlock. Excuse me. <laughs> but I, I never claimed to be a 1999 spurt. Just a Trexpert. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm I'm winging it with this space 1999 because. Uh, you know, I have to say it'd been a long time since I watched the show, but then that beautiful Shout Factory set, Blu-ray set oh. came out, uh, which you're featured on. Um, and uh, it really renewed my interest in, in Space 1999. Well, that's wonderful. And I, I think you're exactly right. You know, I, I think probably my assumption writing that book, because I, I wrote it in, I think, 1994 and it came out in yeah. 1997. But my assumption at the time, I, I, I was sort of litigating this piece of history that seemed so wrong. If you read some of the absurd criticisms lodged at Space 1999, I mean, they're, they're, they're just not, they don't have any basis in, in reality if you actually watch the series. So I thought 
this show has an expiration date. It's in the title. Right? And so, so I, so I'm going to litigate the hell out of this right now. I mean, now having written many more books, that was my first book. I'm, I may not have taken such an, an aggressive stance now because it's a very different time. Now we, we accept many other shows besides Star Trek, but at, at that point that wasn't necessarily the case. And now, as you say, it's like, wow, 1999 was not an expiration date. If anything, it was the opposite. It's freaked people up to sort of look at it and say, wow, despite the title, this show was actually further ahead of its time than I think people realized. It's just the title messes with everybody, Right. I think. Well, it's funny. Just today I was reading in the newspaper that I guess the government's looking to do a contract to for somebody to build a nuclear uh, plant on the moon and of right. course my first instinct was no don't do it we know what happens if you put nuclear waste on the moon but that was literally this morning <laughs> exactly. I, saw that too. I saw that too i said look here we are we're gonna have moon base alpha the moon is gonna be thrown out of orbit and it'll be 800 years between episodes as isaac asimov said as the moon slowly <laughs> moves through our solar system <laughs> well, I mean, I think- one of the reasons go ahead rob Oh, well, I was going to say that the thing about Space 1999, especially the first season, is space is really scary. Yes. Like, like I, I don't know if I want to be... Uh, I mean, one of the things that, that... Star Trek had horror elements. Operation Annihilate, mm-hmm. Devil in the Dark, even the Immunity Syndrome and the Doomsday Machine are horrific, and obviously Cat's Paw. But, but Space 1999 is... The, the, the universe is indifferent to your suffering, and everybody you meet out there is not only completely beyond your comprehension, but they don't have your best interests at heart right. at all. Right. And, and that's one of the things I liked about it is that it literally combined science fiction with this idea of of almost a Lovecraftian yes. universe. That and was beautifully said. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's what I love about and going back, especially the first season before the show was fundamentally changed. And this idea that there is a dark God out there, perhaps pushing the Alphans along on this odyssey, right. almost as if it's a crucible for all of them. They just never got to the end. Right. Of. So it, it, I wanna, it's I wanna... very powerful. And, and it's different really from, from Star Trek. I mean, I, and, and I love Star Trek. Some people have said to me, you don't like Star Trek. And I said, no, I love Star Trek. I, you can, I don't know if you can see all my Star Trek figures in my office. Behind. I know your <laughs> listeners won't be able to, but uh, um you know, I, I love Star Trek, but you know, my, my purpose was to say, hey, this isn't, you know, what people say it is. It, it, it's very different from Star Trek. And a lot of the criticism came from sort of people involved in Star Trek, people who wanted to be involved in a new Star Trek, people who were Star Trek fans. I mean, I'll never forget going to a Star Trek convention and uh, seeing somebody wearing a shirt that said, waste of space 1999, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Star Trek lives. And you know what you said captures it so well because space 99 says no it's not just this like galactic ocean we're going to sail from port to port and and meet fascinating and interesting people and be gulliver's travels which is an amazing paradigm let's face it i mean that is the paradigm of space television and and it's perfect star trek is great but instead space 1999 said no this is you're going out into the unknown. We're technologically, psychologically unprepared for this journey. It wasn't our choice. We have limited resources and we don't understand a damn about what is out there. And th- so this sort of ambiguity, um, the sense of you never know what's going to be in the next story or what they're going to encounter next or how dangerous it's going to be, it, it makes it 
it, it makes it engaging and terrifying in, in a way, in a way very different from Star Trek's brand of entertainment, which is also wonderful, of course. Right? <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know, sort of the competition came because it came out at a very unique time. It was only a few years after Star Trek had gone off the air, but it was really in its heyday of syndication. Right. And you, you know, if you remember when Starlog came out, what, 76, you had that first issue about Star Trek. And then the second issue was Space 1999. And everyone was, you know, was selling, is this going to be the next Star Trek? That was the way right. it was kind of being sold because this is pre-Star Wars. And, and everyone said, oh, this is going to be the next Star Trek. And there was a lot of excitement i think because of the cast because of you know yeah. even who those of us who were young at the time we kind of knew martin landau and now and a new point from mission impossible because it was the show that was like in syndication after star trek right. um so i think there was all this expectation that it would sort of be star trek light and it, it wasn't and i love what you say in the book because you talk about the idea that star trek showed us as we wanted to be and spice space 1999 showed us as we were and right. that's an interesting counterpoint, I think, because it, it, it's true uh, to a certain extent. It's not aspirational. No, but they're just trying to survive. Attention all sections alpha. This is Commander John Koenig. As you know, our moon has been blasted out of orbit. We have been completely cut off from planet Earth. As we are, we have power, environment, and therefore, the possibility of survival. If we should try to improvise a return to Earth without travel plots, without full resources, it is my belief that we would fail. Therefore, in my judgment, we do not try. And if anything, I think that may get back to an, an explanation of what you said earlier about why is Space 1999 in vogue now for the people who do watch it and can get past the, you know, the unisex, you know, <laughs> disco belts and the, you know, if they, you can get past those things and, and appreciate the visuals. And also hey, Ru Rudy, Rudy Geinrich, Genrich doesn't want hear that i mean you know, right. this, they, this was a huge coup to have their guy that's right, that's right. Those but, uniforms. you know if you look at it it's much more in tune with where we are today i mean you know every day during this pandemic and during these last several years i i i have clung so hard to star trek because it's so important to dream that we can be better and that we have this amazing future in front of us. And that is the beauty and value of Star Trek. The beauty and value of Space 1999 is it, it, it's a much more, I think it was the critic in the Los Angeles Times who said it, it was a sort of a much less um, sort of optimistic view of, of a universe where things are limited and you have to fight for them. It's much more Darwinian. Um, and, you know, that, that feels like a little bit more of our time now. It's like, you know, dude, we think we're going to build a federation. We can't even get people to wear a mask when they go outside, you know? And, and, and Space 1999 speaks to these deeper human flaws where um, the, the the fact that the Alphans are, are not technologically or psychologically prepared to encounter what they encounter, and that kind of destroys some of their encounters with these aliens. I mean, they, they play an active role in sort of not being able to understand and being consumed with fear 
for instance, in an episode like War Games, or, um, you know, they don't, they don't come from a position of power where they can positively impact their environment. I, I, you know, the, the Enterprise, of course, can. The Enterprise can defend itself. It can fly away. You know, the, it's part of an organization which is peaceful and powerful, uh, in which, you know, really, there's no poverty. Oh, again, wonderful things. Listen, I'd sign me up for that right now. That's what I would love to have. But Space 1999, you know, is just is much more grounded. And, and, and it's a funny thing. I was thinking about this in anticipation of, of, of us discussing tonight, discussing it tonight is that, you know, people always say, well, Space 1999 is so like, not scientific. It's against science. And I think, well, yes and no. It, it's, it's interesting because certainly Johnny Byrne, the story editor, who when I spoke to him about it and he'd say, you know, when I saw the concept of the moon traveling in front of the universe, you know, this cloud just traveled in front of my eyes. So I thought, what on, how am I going to do this? Right. And, and so, yes, that is sort of blatantly anti-scientific and, you know, anti-real, so to speak. But if you, if you look at like the nuts and bolts of space 1999, I mean, it's got, you know, explosive decompression. It's got different gravity. You know, it accurately portrays gravity on the moon's surface. It's, it's got pilots wearing uh, space suits, environmental suits almost all the time. It's got modular spacecraft. They're worried about fuel. Will we be able to ex expend the amount of fuel and get back to Alpha in time from visiting the planet? You know, it, in a way different than Star Trek, it was very grounded in the nuts and bolts of space exploration where Star Trek, it's like, well, to save costs, we just kind of beam down and we're not wearing environmental suits. And, and, and of course they, they've built a beautiful universe around that. Well, we don't need that because the transporter will filter out, you know, it's dangerous bugs, whatever. But, but space 99 just in a way is very real. It's very real to what we see as space travel now, as opposed to something like Star Trek. I think you're absolutely right. In fact, I think that uh, your your statement there that um, space 1999 is a uh, a science based um, uh, figuring out of a fantastical situation, whereas Star Trek is a scientific situation that deals with fantastical things that happen within it. I love that. But I think they're yeah. they're both yeah. they're both you know uh, polar opposites of one another. Uh, right. Another. I, I was just saying, you know, one of the things that Johnny Byrne, he said to me, he said, John, you know, where we did well were the things he said when he said the role of science for me when writing these episodes was that if we knew about something like what the gravity was on the moon, then it, it should have been accurate. And he said, and we failed if we didn't make that stuff accurate. But the stuff we didn't know, the stuff out there, he said, you know, the sky is the limit. Don't tell me, you know, that we can't do these things because we don't know because we, you know, we haven't been there. So he said, yeah, you know, so the things we knew we, the things, we, I'm sorry, I sound like Donald Trump Rumsfeld, <laughs> the things we know we know should be right. But the things we don't know, we can sort of explore imaginatively what the universe is like. And, and I think that's the amazing thing about Space 1999 is, is this very grounded scientific approach. And then they go out and there are these mind-blowing, trippy vistas <laughs> and cultures. And there's no obligation to say this is going to be the recurring enemy. You know, each show is a one-off. And, and I think that in a way harms Space 1999's reputation too, because 
it gave them the freedom to try anything. And sometimes they would fail. I mean, because, I mean, you put down any episode of Space Nighttime, you put it on the TV and you put an audience in front of it, half of them are going to like it, half of them won't. I mean, like the episode, The Full Circle, where they go through a time warp and become cavemen. I know people who despise that episode and I know people who love that episode, you know, but it's just a crazy one-off. They're all, all the episodes are sort of crazy one-offs, you know, that, that are imaginative and really go for it. And they show you things in a way that you haven't seen on other programs, but there's not this sort of through line of a universe where you have the comfort of knowing I'm going to meet Klingons again this week, or right. we're going to meet the Vulcan again. You know, Vulcan. you could argue that this is what Voyager should have been. You know, Space 1999 is what Voyager should have been, where every week it's something bizarre that we can't understand and we're alone in this vast cosmos. Yes. I, I felt that was something that, that Voyager always missed out on. You know, Star Trek's yeah. never captured that. I mean, Brandon, more than anyone, was able to do a little of that. Yeah. And I don't think he was a Space 1999 fan, but clearly that's the only place I think you can see any kind of influence of Space 1999 in Star Trek. Well, the Another funny thing, thing is, uh, go go ahead. Well, another thing that people don't like, I've always thought of Space 1999 actually is a third part of a trilogy that began with Captain Scarlet versus the Mysterons. And you got you go from Captain Scarlet versus the Mysterons to UFO to Space 1999. And this is, of course, Jerry Anderson. And he's as much of a and maybe if not more, you know, he's not thought of as a Gene Roddenberry figure, but he really was. I mean, starting with Supercar and Fireball XL5, Stingray. Uh, uh, Thunderbirds, Joe 90, but he, this, this, there was a darkness. You have a kid show, a super marionation show in Captain Scarlet, where they're fighting this unknown enemy, the Mysterons, who could infiltrate them and, and take over people's bodies. And would, would it, it was this sort of this unknowable enemy. And they repeat that motif in UFO. And obviously space 1999 was going to be the second season of, of UFO. And it sort of mutated into this. And then, then we move out into the cosmos. Finally, we're we're no longer waiting to get get attacked or possessed or whatever. And we're going into and we find out that everything out in the universe is is unknowable and weird. You might wind up in, in the thralls of the Guardian of Piri, or you might <laughs> wind up in the spaceship graveyard where where Tony Cellini met the dragon obi dick of outer space and it was <laughs> or the mission of the Darians. I mean, it was it was never they never met anybody who is like nice you know, it's, it's, it's it's like hey we've come to this we've come to risa you know the pleasure planet or right. here's, here's the amusement park planet where you your dreams will come true everything was horrible like every place they went to was just awful and and we have to get the hell out of here as soon as we can yes and I, I, they brought have... humanity was the we were the nice people we were bringing sort of a calming uh, a rationality to an irrational unknowable universe that that every week we we tried to bring our humanity to it sometimes it worked most of the time it didn't and we ran with our tails tucked between our legs to get the hell out of there you just said that so beautifully and that's you know the thing that johnny Byrne stressed to me because he did talk about voyager and and i have to say i'm a voyager fan i love Catherine janeway and kate mulgrew i i like voyager very much but i do see missed opportunities there and he he said to me and let me see if i can say this right um he said you know, it seemed to me the stories were in, in Space 1999 were about people who didn't have what they needed except their humanity. Um, but but in Vo and, and, and they accomplished a lot because they survived and went on. He said, but in Voyager, they, they have everything and they, and they don't accomplish anything. 
you know, mm-hmm. you know it's, it's like they have they have every resource. They have the holodeck. They have uh, shuttles. They have warp drive. You know, the trans warp. Con- they all this stuff, but but they don't really accomplish anything. I don't know if I agree totally with that because I've been revisiting Voyager with my son recently, and I've I've, I've actually really enjoyed it tremendously. Um, so I, I don't want to bash on Voyager, but I mean, certainly there is a comparison there. I think, and you know, Johnny. He always said to me. He said, "You know, it's about the humanity of the characters." And he he said because some, I mean, some of the stories. Well, okay, none of the stories in the first season feature the Alphans encountering anybody who is more primitive than they are. Right. You know, even the episode with the cavemen that I mentioned, they're the cavemen, and they don't right. realize. This. <laughs> you know, so they're always encountering more advanced civilizations, and the idea is that the, it's holding up a mirror to them as humanity. And a lot of episodes like Missing Link and, so, and, and such focus on this idea of um, how important feeling is and emotion, and which again is a Star Trek idea as well. Um, and not so much, you know, this, uh, you know, sort of serene um, machine mind, because there's a lot of episodes with up against kind of machine minds, like you mentioned Guardian of Peary, um, the, the, the scientist in Missing Link that was played by Peter Cushing, uh, you know, the, the, even the serene um, Captain Zantor in Earthbound where we saw the spaceship a minute ago there, you know, again, you know, there, there was this idea that in the cosmos evolution was like gearing towards a place or something where that humanity wasn't there anymore. It's like the color and vibrancy of humanity was kind of drained away. And the Alphans were bringing that back, bringing back life to dead planets like uh, Piri or um, Arcadia in the Testament of Arcadia, or even the alternate earth in another time, another place, mm-hmm. which to me is just a really fascinating thing because certainly the attack against space 1999 is that like the characters, like the, the, you know they say it wouldn't you know that's the joke right they're, it's jerry anderson so they're, they're puppets right they're, they're, that, that's like the joke nobody can resist they're wooden the characters are wooden okay good joke move on no but, that's but, that's ufo <laughs> <laughs> no ufo is great come on right? my beloved ed straker is not wooden well, look, I, i'm actually glad rob specifically that you brought up sort of the origin of the show because i do want to talk about that a little bit because you know, I think that maybe some of our audience is perfectly uh, aware of Space 1999, but doesn't really know the history. And if Space 1999 and Star Trek can be compared in any respect, it's really getting it on the air in a sense that they use Star Trek as an excuse, you know, to build this international campaign. Uh, and, and that originally it did start with it was going to be Ed Straker and Ed Bishop was going to you know be in, in the show and it was going to be ufo season two and of course that evolved into something completely different and i wonder if you can speak to the sort of origin of it as well as you know getting martin landau and barbara bain involved and of course the the problems that that created for uh johnny byrne and chris penfold and jerry <laughs> and sylvia anderson in terms of uh you know the the, the day-to-day when you suddenly have these big american stars right. on this international co-production uh, absolutely. So, you know, S- Star Trek, of course, was uh, incredibly popular. UFO did really well in the ratings and then kind of began to tank in the United States. It started out strong and then the ratings began to drop and th- they began to correlate it that it seemed like the episodes where they were on the moon base because there was a moon base in UFO, a smaller moon base than the one in Space Night. Those, those seemed to be the ones that were really popular uh, well-rated things like that. And so it, it might have had to do with the purple haired women. 
<laughs> with, with the breakaway spacesuits, right? right. You know, just pull the leg right off and the sleeves right off. You know? Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so then, you know, the idea was, okay, so we want to continue with that. And, and then the edict came from Lord Lou Gray that like, they weren't even to return to earth at all. It's like, oh, so, so they said, well, we have to do something so we don't return to earth because again, Star Trek was so popular exploring, you know, the galaxy and such as well, let's, let's move the moon you know, out of orbit and then it's in space and they can't go back to it. We can't have any earthbound stories because the moon will be separated from the earth. I mean, it's kind of a crazy idea. And, and you know, they, there were different stories that would have made that happen. Like where like aliens attack the moon and they reduce its gravity to zero. And that's why it goes out in space. You know, there, there, there are different origins of this strange sort of moon exploring the galaxy, uh, you know, format. Uh, and then when they knew that this was going to be such an expensive series, they did seek financing from the ARR, excuse me, RAI. Um, you know, they, they, they wanted to be, uh, they were hoping to get a network sale in the United States. That's why they cast American stars. You know, they looked at Robert Culp uh, as well as Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. I'm Barbara Bain. I'm Martin Landau. Join us here on Channel 11 for the most exciting new television show ever. Space 1999. The excitement never stops. The moon is hurled into outer space. Taking us and you into unlimited adventure. Come with us and our co-star Barry Morse. Space 1999. It's going to be a very good year. Right here on Channel 11. But once you factored in Martin Landau and Barbara Bain as, as the stars of this international you know, cast, because we had an Australian, we had an Englishman, uh, I think several Englishmen, actually. Um, then, then it became a whole different story where they were sort of demanding screen time. Martin Landau had very specific demands as far as screen time were concerned. And so Dragon's Domain, I think, was originally supposed to be feature Alan Carter as the astronaut mm. who uh, had that background in history, not Tony Cellini. Um, but they needed to have like an Italian guest star, things like that. And um, so it, it became, you wonder why Space 1990 is so realistic in so many ways. And that, you know, Koenig is like an administrator. He, he's, he's not a space cowboy. He's a realistic sort of administrator in, at a base, right? But then in certain episodes, it's just like flying eagle mission, flying an eagle suicide mission. What? <laughs> you delegate that one, right? Alan can do that, right? Why are you, why are you doing this? Um, and, and it's because, of course, Landau needed the screen time, right? He, he, as the star of the show, he needed to be front and center. So suddenly, instead of doing, you know, instead of maintaining that very strict reality and saying, of course, he would delegate to his best pilot or a second best pilot or whatever, and they would they would fly the suicide mission, you know, he's going to do it instead. Um, you know, and, and again, it, it just breaks down the reality of it. But but that's the reality of Hollywood, right? Is is that you know? But that's it, something it shares again with Star Trek. Martin right. Landau was very much like Shatner in that he constantly wanted more screen time and right. constantly you know wanted to diminish the role of anyone else, you know, right. uh, because he felt you know, and rightly so, he was the star and and should right. get the the bulk of uh, the storylines. Right, and Landau and was exactly the same way. 
Absolutely. And I mean, I think you can make, I think you can make a case for, I mean, you know, it's really great. You know, I can, it's, it's great to say, you know, when people pick on Space 1999 and say, well, how many shows do you know star a three-time Emmy winner and an Oscar award? So later on, we were sort of validated in our support of Martin Lando and Barbara Bain. They weren't just the stars of Mission Impossible. They were, you know, they'd won all these awards. You know, I've always thought Martin Landau is terrific because especially in the first season he isn't larger than life even doing these things he's always struck me as very grounded and very reality based i mean sometimes he's just he's he's snappy and bitchy at people because he's in a bad mood <laughs> you know i mean it's, it's it's like your boss i mean and I, and I feel like if there were a moon base in 1999 that's like monitoring nuclear waste dumps and a bunch of scientists competing for resources you're going to have an administrator like john Koenig, and of course they would pick you know someone who'd been an astronaut and, and you know a, a leader of people you, you know it, it just all made sense and worked so even though there were those moments like well, why is he flying that mission it, it, it made sense. I, I think it made sense. But but to go back to the, you know, the what you asked me, you know, the big deal then, of course, was that um, Space 1999 did not, none of the networks wanted to, to accept this series because what Jerry and Sylvia Anderson did was they created a whole season of shows, 24 episodes written by a coherent sort of stable of writers, some of which you mentioned, um, you know, Johnny Byrne, Christopher Penfold. And, and and if you talk to either of them, they felt like they created a story arc within that season and that there was growth that as they learned how to tell these stories, the characters also learned how to deal with their situation in some right. respect. But basically the network said, you can't deliver this to us, this fate accompli. We can't interfere with this. You know, you're presenting me 24 episodes. We don't have any say over it. It's done. You know, I remember there was some critical comment that said this series wasn't produced. It was committed like a crime because because, of course, it was, you know, 24 episodes. Here you go. You know, and, and it was. And, and I mean, honestly, I think more TV should be that way. Let the creators create it, make their season. And, and the people who are counting beans or doing focus groups, maybe they shouldn't. If, if they really had faith in that idea, maybe they shouldn't be messing around in it. I know that'll never happen, but I, but it makes sense in a way. Um, so that no network wanted to commit to airing space 1999 because again, they, they had no hand in it. They had not been able to shape it. They were presented with a fate accompli, but what worked in space 1999's favor was that they sold it to syndication stations around the world. But in the United States, they covered like 95% of the United States so that space 1999 could be aired in prime time. Now they did what Star Trek, the next generation did you know, two decades later, maybe not two decades, a decade later, sorry about that, <laughs> a decade later. Uh, so 12 years, something like that. So th- they they created their own ad hoc Space 1999 network and they were aided by the fact that the, the time it came out, the 1975 fall season, it was widely considered the worst network season in, in like TV history. It, it, it was filled with bombs and like, affiliates would look at the shows they were supposed to air and if they could air space 1999 they would replace it like they some stations like they replaced shatner's show barbary coast i think was space 1999 um because they didn't have confidence in it so space 1999 suddenly is playing in prime time all over the united states on different channels and it is getting great ratings i mean it was winning its time slots in a lot of different places uh, um all over the united states but 
you know, then they start to hear the criticisms come in over this, you know, the, after these 24 episodes air, you know, uh, it's not fast enough. Um, people don't understand this. The characters don't, aren't warm, right. you know? And, and, you know, that's why the second season of course is so different because then it's like, okay, now we have to respond to all these criticisms and change the entire show around so that it seems more geared towards an American audience. So what might've happened in episode two or three, if it were made in America under the guidance of an American network happened between season one and two with, you know, uh, offices in New York, uh, you know, correspondence saying you need more monsters this week. You need, you know, you, you need to have more action this week, things like that. And, and that's why season two looks the way it does and, and why it's so different. Well, that's another reason I think that Space 1999 so often gets lumped in with Star Trek, because the other thing it has in common is, you know, that the joke goes, Fred Freiberger killed them both, you know, was responsible for the, and I think that is, is somewhat, um, inaccurate or unfair to Fred Freiberger, but can you talk a little bit about the dramatic changes for season two and bringing in Fred Freiberger and how, how much that show changed and why? I I got to meet Fred Freiberger just once. It was in, it was at the space 1999 convention on, it was at on the day of breakaway in 1999 in Los Angeles. Um, And, and he, he was very elderly at that point. And, and he got up and had to speak to, you know, some, most people were very nice, but some people, were not happy with him, you know, because of the changes he made. And, and Johnny Byrne was very gracious and sat on stage with him. And, you know, Johnny was always very clear. And so, you know, this is the, this is the attitude I have taken. He said, you know, I didn't like the changes that Freddie made, but there would not have been a second season without Freddie Freiberg. So if you like any, if you wanted more Space 1999 episodes of any kind, that was how they were going to be. Landau and Barbara Bain returns to Channel 43 for a second season. See a special preview of The Ultimate Adventure Thursday night, August 19th at 8 o'clock. Why did you attack our ship? We came in peace. You sent an armed ship to our planet. And talk of peace. Space 1999 also features Catherine Schell as Maya. Why are you so unfriendly? I've been lied to, assaulted, seen my people brutalized, killed. Shall I go on? Obviously, Commander, you have not fully recovered. Metal betrayers. I warn you, Koenig. Any force you use will be turned against you. I think I can neutralize it. Space 1999. Don't miss a special fall preview Thursday night, August 19th at 8 o'clock, right here on UA43. But, but what happened was, again, between seasons, they, they decided they were going to retool. Um, and Johnny Burnett put together sort of this, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, um, it's not, not uh, autopsy isn't maybe the right word, but he like, post-mortem. He like sort of, <laughs> post-mortem is the right word. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, you know, he, he had like, they listed all 24 episodes and he wrote his assessment of each and, and said, you know, these are the things that work. These are the things that didn't work. And he was hoping he was going to be story editor for the second season. And I believe that was the plan, but then they decided we have to change this up. We need an American producer. And that's where Freddie came in and, you know, Freddie, Freiberger came in from American television, which was very different and had different priorities. And so, of course, he'd come off Star Trek. And I I don't know that I would blame him for anything about 
Star Trek third season because the budget was lower and sure there was Spock's brain, but there's also the Tholian web. <laughs> there's also the, the paradise syndrome, you know, there, there, uh, the dove. Yeah, day of the dove. I don't know. I can't. I, I can't. I can't bring myself to hate on Star Trek the third season. So anyway, uh, right. we, but, we've already done that episode. Okay, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. But you know, so I, I know he's the show killer, and and I know why people feel that way. But what he did is he came in. He said, um, "We need to change this up. We um, we need younger a younger cast." And and there were sort of negotiations about whether or not to bring back Barry Morse, you know, and I I think the actor asked for more money. You know, I've heard both versions of the story. You know, some people, you know, say Barry Morse said, bye, I'm leaving. You know, I I, want to go back and play with the grownups. And other people say that it was a negotiating ploy and then they didn't come back to him. You know, so they introduced a a resident alien, uh, a character like Spock in the sense that they were going to be the science officer on Alpha, but not like Spock in the sense that uh, Maya is unemotional or logical. In fact, I mean, I think the great thing about, you know, Catherine Schell's Maya is she's played with such joy and humor. There's this impish quality about her. Um, You know, for me, it's like, I, you know, I, I very much prefer the first season of Space 1999. But if you said to me what worked about season two, I'd say Maya, right? You know, Maya was great, but the stories were not so great, they, you know, and, and some of the other changes. I mean, they, 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 they planned a wholesale slaughter of the first season supporting cast. Uh, you know, yep. Prentice Hancock was gone as Paul. Um, David Cana was gone. Um, who else was got? Well, uh, Sandra, Sa- Sandra, right? So, she, and she came in like on an episode by episode basis in the second season when she was available. Um, uh, Doctor Matthias was only in two episodes, uh, so so they you know they they almost weren't going to bring back Alan until they found out how much fan mail Nick Tate was getting as Alan Carter, and they brought him back. They were going to substitute him like with an eagle pilot named Mark Mackinlock or something, you know. They brought in a security officer, um, a young security officer. Tony Anhalt was uh, Tony Berdeshi, and he sort of became the first officer. But generally, um, the idea of, of the show in the second season was it was going to be more fast moving. There's going to be a lot more action. There was going to be a warm family atmosphere, which, again, you know, really, you know, in space where you're struggling for survival. Okay. Um, that it, it was going to feel much more like Star Trek, light, humorous, breezy, action-packed. And basically the Alphans, uh, Johnny Burns said it best. He said, in, this, in the second season, the Alphans were there to kick ass, you know, right. and they were. It's like they're running up against all these advanced aliens and they always win, even though they got nothing. They got nothing. It's right. funny. Out there is a, uh, is a, a section of an EPK, an electronic press kit, from the beginning of that second season. And they were uh, interviewing all the cast uh, when they were out on location shooting someplace. And it's funny that all of them say almost exactly the same talking points. They say, <laughs> well, we're going to have more action this season, uh, uh, you, know, uh, more, uh, you know, more engaging with the audience and more, uh, you know, more fun. And we're right. gonna we're gonna really have a, a great time out there, and uh, and we're gonna you know we're gonna continue to push on and and do a great job. And all of the actors said exactly the same thing. So obviously <laughs> they had had a sit down uh, beforehand. <laughs> That's uh, right. But uh, it was very hilarious and 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 uh, and a little bit sad to see them having to parrot this. 
they'd been indoctrinated clearly that, you know, this is, this is how it was going to be. And, and this was going to be the thing that carried them on. But then of course you had all the interviews with them years later, they all say, you know, the, the first season vision was much stronger. We would have preferred to continue that route. You know, I think the sad and maybe even tragic thing about Space 1999 was it came on the air with these like sort of magical 24 episodes that even the ones that failed, failed in interesting ways. Let me put it that way. And failed in ambitious ways. And then all these changes, they listened to all these people who told them you have to change it. You have to do all these things. And in doing so, it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It had not been a ripoff of Star Trek. You know, it was not in any way, shape, or form a ripoff of Star Trek the way it began. By the end of season two, you I mean, they, they even had episode titles in common, like the immunity syndrome. That was the title of a yeah. Space 1999 episode. Yeah. Yep. I mean, what is going on? I have on? the eagle with the uh, glider on top. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, and actually, it's a pretty good episode. John Johnny Byrne wrote that, and it was going to be called, I think, "The Face of Eden" or something like that. But they changed it to "The Immunity Syndrome." Why? Why were they trying to fool people into thinking it's a Star Trek episode? You know, and so you know, ultimately, it finished in kind of a sad way, which was that this self fulfilling prophecy it had become what it really was not because they they listened to voices who didn't understand the nuances of what space 1999 was and how special the series was in its original iteration. You know, there were, there were definitely talks. I mean, you know, the, 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 there were talks right up until the end of the second season about a third season and even a spinoff starring Catherine Shell as Maya. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, you know, talks about, about a continuing and then, uh, you know, if I understand right, uh, Lou Grade wanted to get into movies and make Raise the Titanic, and the budget for that film was the budget for a third season of Space 1999. So they asked Space 1999, which, of course, right at the dawn of Star Wars, I mean, talk about a dumb decision. I mean, you know, but but then again, you know, who knows? You know, Space 1999 got on third season after Star Wars. Maybe then someone would have said, you have to come in and do, you know, dogfights in space and stuff you know so who knows what would have happened but you know it clearly had an identity and then to some extent sacrificed that identity in the second season to appeal more to what they considered an american audience but but americans by and large really liked the first season i mean if you go by the ratings of the the first season, well you know one of the things too about the show the first season that i think going back and watching it now Obviously, the idea that the moon would not still even be in our solar system now. I mean, 45 years later, it would never have escaped our solar system. So there's an idea in the first season that there is some kind of an intelligence, some kind of call it God, if you will. There is a, a an intelligence that is pushing the Alphans along. And like when you get to the Testament of Arcadia, there's more evidence that this is is happening. And it it's in a way. I like this idea that if they had continued on that they're going, they have a destiny to meet up with whatever this intelligent. Now I say it's Cthulhu Lovecraftian, but I don't, I don't necessarily think it's that way. It's just, I, I think they're dealing with, with very fascinating overarching issues of not necessarily faith, but the idea that, that there's, there's things way beyond what we understand way beyond our com- comprehension and all of these things in the first season are preparing humanity to whether it's a 2001 evolution where when we finally meet this cosmic because they they have these cosmic intelligences like collision course like what happens at the end of collision course is amazing and so when you when you're when you're watching this now when you go back and you watch it now you definitely see there's elements of that right. in the story 
and and it, it's too bad because there's other science fiction like in Battlestar Galactica a couple years later they had the light ships mm-hmm. and there's the idea even modern Galactica the unseen character in Ron Moore's Galactica Ron Moore and Ike's Galactica is God right. is this is this this that brought Kara Thrace back and her godlike viper right. you know somewhere there's these and and Space 1999 had that too yeah. and it would have been nice to see them move out and go forward and I always thought Space 1999 was like the Quatermass experiment in space. Right. You know? and, and that's, it, it kind of had 20 million years to Earth, the, the uh, Quatermass 2. It, it had a lot of that Britishness in there about the unknowability of the universe, yet there's an intelligence out there that's just waiting for us to discover it. And I don't know what's going to happen when it does, but it's going to be interesting. Right. And, and I don't mean to, you know, harp on my conversations with Johnny, but I feel like, you know, he, he passed away, Johnny Byrne, in 2008, and I met him in 1999. And we were so we were friends for the better part of a decade. Um, we talked a lot. We collaborated on a script together, a screenplay. Um, and, I, and I feel like if he were here today, he would want to say these things to you. He, he, he would be the guest to have on here today, uh, not me. But he, he said to me, uh, because I, I had the, my web series I was working on in from 2006 to 2009. It was a no budget thing, you know, and and he said he said to me, John, you make your weaknesses your strengths. And we talked a lot about the Blair Witch Project, which he loved. He said, that's a movie that made its weaknesses, its strengths. And he said, that's what we did on Space 1999. As I said before, he said he said a cloud went past his eyes when he saw the premise of the moon going through space he said but that thing that thing which on first blush you know makes no sense and which we were so pilloried for it was the door that opened for what you were just talking about like so so if the moon does get blasted out of orbit and is traveling through space why how did that happen how did that work in defiance of science and the rules of physics as we know so then if if, if that's our premise then what flows from that premise Mm -hmm. ancient gods the God inside the black sun, the black hole. So like the weakness of the show, the, the core weakness of that premise, which they clearly, the writers anyway, clearly knew about and understood, they used that to build this, you know, prehistoric, you know, in terms of television um, story arc, you know, and, and made Space 1999 about something more than just an adventure each week. It was held together, although they were one-offs, by this arc of this idea of, some force interfering in human destiny to, you know, to move the alphans from one place to the other. So I think it's incredibly powerful. And there's, and there's really nothing else like that story. I mean, you've mentioned, you, you know, Battlestar Galactic and stuff. Like at that time, there wasn't really anything else doing that. There was, there was no other show at that time that was doing that. So, you know, I, I think it's fascinating how they took a premise, which was sort of universally reviled, even by the writers of the show and figured out a way to somehow make it deep and organic to the story and, and make it something that's powerful and resonates with people even to this day. Well, you mentioned the metaphysical influence of 2001, but obviously there was a lot more, you know, we talk about Star Trek's influence, but 2001's influence was clearly a huge influence. Obviously the involvement of somebody like Brian Johnson, but in the production design, as well as the visual effects, there's a very Kubrickian influence. And you could say that other than Star Trek, the motion picture, it's probably the last of the, um, of, of, of the big sci-fi franchises to be influenced by 2001 because you really get to after that, it's all either Star Trek, Star Wars, or Alien that's influencing filmmakers after yeah. that. So 
Um, it's sort of cool. I mean, because if you really look at the moon, moon base alpha and, and the, the, the tunnel, the, uh, the, you know, the, the shuttle and a lot of these things, they're, they're so influenced by Kubrick and by Doug Trumbull, another guest on this podcast. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, I have to be completely and 100% honest about Space 1999. I mean, I don't think it's a ripoff of Star Trek. I don't think it's a ripoff of 2001. But if you want to look at what are the clear antecedents for Space 1999 as a series, you know, outside of Jerry Anderson, outside of UFO and such that were talked about before. I mean, you have to go to 2001, of course, the idea of, you know, the ultimate trip. I mean, we were at a point in our culture and, and Johnny referred to it as the wake up from the hippie dream. That's what he called that time in American culture. And it's really, hmm. and, and global culture, British culture as well. And it's really fascinating if you actually look at the science fiction from, from that time. I mean, we're talking about 2001. We're talking about silent running. Uh, we're talking about Soylent Green. We're talking about Space 1999, Zardoz. I mean, these are all these strange dystopian um, science fiction films. I mean, e even some of the Planet of the Apes films were in that in the seventies as well, um, where we're, we're talking about you know man man's future and fate uh, in very interesting ways. So the the ultimate trippiness of uh, two thousand and one is reflected almost on a weekly basis in the first season of Space Nineteen Nine. I mean, Guardian of Piri. I mean, you look at that. There has never been ever a planet that's looked like that right. in science fiction TV history. I mean, it's bizarre and beautiful and wonderfully realized. And, and then they, in um, Titan AE in 2000, they, they, one of the planets they went to like was an homage to the Guardian period with those with the weird orb plants. And, uh, I mean, they just did well. We, we, we know all too well oh, because we I'll never forget when Rob Burnett, when we were making Free Enterprise, and, and Rob turned to the production designer and said about this party we were filming. Originally, it was going to be a beach party, and then it became a party at, uh, at a soundstage. He said, I want it to look like the planet from Guardians of Piri. <laughs> and, and, of course, the production designer had no idea. We, so we had to get out the laser disc. It was, this is how long ago it was. The laser disc of Guardians of Piri and show them exactly what he wanted. If you watch very carefully, you'll see how much the decor, the art direction is influenced by Guardians of Period, which may be the first and last time any pop culture was ever influenced by the Guardians of Period. Well, but that, you know, again, if you think about 2001, whoever the aliens are, the the force at the end of that movie could very well be, you could say, and I'm sure it was, I'm sure the writers had to have been thinking in the back of their minds that whoever they were, whatever the people that put Dave Bowman in that hotel, those are the people that are guiding the Alphans. You know, like, like, right. like even though Space 1999, 2001, there would be no moon, so they would never have found the monolith. <laughs> right. I, I always thought it would have been funny if they did an episode of Space 1999 where they actually found the Tycho crater and the monolith <laughs> on the moon. And that was that was the that was the the, the sort of the the homing beacon that they right. knew where it was. So the aliens are like, hey, let's push them along a little further today. Right, right. <laughs> let's connect with that monolith and push the moon a little further. It could have fit. It could have fit. But definitely, I mean, in terms of the spaceship design, in terms of the moon base design, certainly. And, but in terms of that overall ultimate trip idea of space, you know, leading to some sort of reckoning about human consciousness, which I think is evident in 2001, I, I think Space 99 is right of a piece with that for sure. So, I mean, huge influence. You, I, you can't. You can't you can't deny that you'd be foolish to deny that 2001 was a major influence on space. Also, let's realize that this was this was produced basically five years after 2001 was made. So 
not only Brian Johnson, but a bunch of the crew had worked yeah. on 2001. So that's the direct lineage because it was the same people doing the same jobs. So <laughs> I think that that relates even closer than you know any sort of spiritual connection that may or may not exist. Uh, but w- one of the things that I found very fascinating was that years later, I think that Star Trek The Next Generation owes a lot more of its feel and texture to Space 1999 than it does the original Star Trek. I think that 99 is a co-parent of Next Generation along with Star Trek. Mm. Absolutely. I I mean, and I I tried to point that out in my book, so I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, the structure, you know, Star Star Trek had that original and brilliant, you know, triumvirate, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and so beautiful with the glasses and the Wrath of Khan and one lens breaks when Spock's, oh, I'm going to cry. It's beautiful. So that triumvirate structure is so fantastic, right? And, and Space 99, the first season, kind of had a triumvirate structure. But in the second season, they went a totally different way. Right. I say in the book, it's like Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice in space. It's two couples. It's the commander and the doctor, right. uh, Koenig and Russell. And then it's this younger mirroring of that yeah. dynamic with uh, the Maya and Tony. Yeah, Tony, and then and the exotic alien, Maya. Yeah. So it's clearly, you know, clearly Picard and Crusher, Riker and Troy are right out of space 1999 absolutely right out of that second season character structure you know again i don't think that's something you can deny i can i can also say that you know tasha and data are of course straight out of aliens right that's you know you got you got your you know very sympathetic andra and you've got your you know macho tough um female soldier you know so it's like yeah you look at all the characters in the next generation they they either come from space 1999 or aliens right so i mean i I love the next generation i'm not again sure but and 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 clearly i mean you know those characters grew beyond those prototypes but but you can't look at what space 1999 did you know in its second season and say that you know that that went nowhere because even in its less successful form those characters were very clearly echoed in the next generation there was something i i also wanted to mention you know as a kid the the lineage of hammer horror and i keep harping on this point but space 1999 did present when i was a kid it had the single scariest episode of television i had ever seen which is dragon's domain and if you're a kid why i mean now it's a little it's a little goofy but not for a kid it isn't I mean, I have to tell you, seeing human beings devoured by a creature and spit out as uh, smoking husks. burnt to a crisp husks. Yeah, you. this was something, as a kid watching a science fiction adventure show, that certainly was something you would never see on Star Trek. Right. And I remember, I mean, it left a huge impression on me. And even yeah. the use of Adagio in the beginning of that episode, the music and yep. the structure of it, I, there were things that while I might not have enjoyed, it, it might not have been delicious the way star trek was delicious it was something that always even though it took a little bit more of my attention as a kid and maybe it took a little bit more a little bit more work to get through the episodes the rewards were very very different i felt like i was watching something maybe i shouldn't have been watching (laughs) and that was part of its appeal i I couldn't agree more and uh, you know to get you know, totally uh, maudlin about this you know i i saw that episode you know when i was five years older thereabouts. And I, I feel like that episode is the thing that sort of pointed my direction for love of like everything of in science fiction. And it was the idea 
that we see in later films like Alien, of course, or, you know, Pandorum or Event Horizon. But to me, the, the tantalizing idea that I just could not get over, which was, again, a little different than Star Trek, because Star Trek, it was sort of tolerable terror. You know, so you knew something bad was going to happen, but you knew Kirk and Spock had each other's backs and they were going to get through it, you know? <laughs> they were, they're, they're going to be okay. But it was this idea of this very realistic, to my mind, seeming future. Uh, th this very realistic looking future with people that I could reckon, reckon with it. I think they're the same age as I, you know, I'll be in my thirties in 1999. So this could be me in this adventure, you know, astronauts, scientists, knowing their thing and going out there with in these incredible ships, these Eagles, whatever. And then they meet this thing that like can't exist. It was this juxtaposition of, of science and knowledge and expectation with, something so horrible and monstrous and to have it depicted like that i mean it just scoots out those bodies and they're steaming hulks you know this, i mean i i've never forgotten that imagery and my, my father who is uh 77 and still with us thank goodness is um you know all i have to do is say space 99 and he, and he remembers like that one and he's not a science fiction guy you know, like I am, he's, he's not a science fiction, he's not a TV guy and he's not a science fiction guy, but you know, he says, you know, he still raves about that episode. I'll bring it up. It's like, oh, you know, space time, <laughs> the, you know, they're on that ship and the astronauts get sucked in by that thing. It just spits out their body. I mean, it's, it's an amazing episode. And well, I mean, it, all just, I, it all I know that uh, between uh, first grade and I think around third grade, um, a picture of that monster was on the side of my uh, lunchbox because I didn't have a Star Trek lunchbox when I was a kid. I had a Space nope. 1999 lunchbox. Stay right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, went through, I, had, I had UFO and then Space yes, 1999. Those are the me lunchboxes too. that I had. There it is. Yep, there it that's is. it. <laughs> wow, that's like brand new. That's, that's cherry. You yeah, that. <laughs> turn it to the turn it to the I'm side. Turn it to the side. <laughs> turn it to the side. A little. What, the what thermos. Other side. Oh. Other side. Other side. Other side. The side. Yeah, there. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's there beautiful. You there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, you know, it's funny because that brings me to this, this question, which, of course, you know, our show Trexperts is a show that's about celebrating what we love about Star Trek and not dissing on what we don't. Right. And so I want to do the same thing for Space 1999. I, I think there, there are three things about Space 1999 that it's hard to argue were great. And, of course, one of them is the guest cast. You had people like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and just these amazing Br uh, British Brian character Blessed. actors. Brian Blessed is awesome. And David Prowse. Yeah. yeah, so many great, uh, so many great people. You you had also a great score by Barry Gray, who had done UFO. Oh, yeah. And did some beautiful music. Uh, and even Derek Wadsworth's music for the second season is is, is really good in a, in a different kind of way. Yeah. And, 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 and it also captures the spookiness and weirdness. But perhaps the best thing about Space 99, the most iconic part of Space 1999, are the spaceships. And any long-lasting science fiction show is going to have an iconic spaceship. And probably for all of us who fell in love with the Enterprise back when we discovered Star Trek, the Eagle is probably a close second you know, I mean, look, I love the Battlestar Galactica. I love Star Destroyers. I love, all, but the Eagle is up there with one of the great, yeah. you know, spaceship designs because it's functional. It feels real and still aesthetically pleasing. It is. It's it's beautiful. It makes sense. It's real. You can. It's you know the modular design of it so that you can put yeah, it. Yeah, I mean pieces of you it. Know. Oh yeah, say I, you're doing you well. I was, I was gonna say the, uh, 
Oh, can you see Wait, that? Yeah. Get... Oh, you that's the Mattel. That's the oh, that's one of the greatest toys ever. I don't know if you can you see but the, the fact that you know the eagle could oh, swap nice out. Box. You know? Wow, right. that's amazing. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, the, you know, the eagle is amazing. And and I agree, it is, you know, oddly enough, it is like a trademark of space 1999. I mean, you you see that eagle ship, you know exactly what it is. It's appeared on Futurama, <laughs> you know, it's appeared mm -hmm. in so many different places. Uh, you know, people seem to know that, which is amazing for a series, you know, that is, you know, 45 years in the rear view. Well, again, it also looked, it looked like it was something that we might have for real. I mean, one of the things, again, the lineage with the Jerry Anderson shows, if you go from Captain Scarlet to UFO to Space 1999, you know, you had the moon hoppers in UFO right. that looked similar with this sort of insectoid circular fronts that looked very, very similar to the Eagles. And there was this design lineage that seemed it just made it all the more plausible because it looked and it also as a kid, it looked like something like you had said, I could fly those one day. That, I yes. could be like I couldn't fly the Enterprise because it took a crew of 430 people to make the Enterprise go. But man, I could fly an eagle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. Exactly. I mean, you know, the, the story of Space 1999, you know, for me as a five year old was. This is where I'm going to be in the year 2000, in the year 1999. This is this is what it's going to look like. We're going to have a moon base that looks like this. It's it's not going to be all crazy colors like Star Trek. It's going to be this sort of, you know, minimalist white <laughs> kind of thing. And you know, we're going to have these spa modular spaceships that are reusable. I mean, it just seemed. It, you know, it seems so plausible. And, and, and the great tragedy for me, of course, is that that didn't happen <laughs> because right. I should be flying an eagle right now. <laughs> well, they've given a couple of years. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's some great Space 1999 toys that are being manufactured. Who would have thought that the heyday of Space 1999 toys? would be uh, now you know, in 2020, <laughs> which is amazing because that's one of my great unowned toys was the Mattel Eagle. I always wanted that. I never got it. I've thought about buying it on eBay many times, but you know, now there are all these fantastic space 1999 uh, replicas and toys. And so it's like, why buy the Mattel one when you can have, cause it's you know, the greatest toy ever made. That's replicas. why Mark. Yeah. That's probably well, also, why I know. I have a it was a free enterprise, wasn't it? It was, was Rob. Yes. It, it's yeah. it's hanging. Yeah, it's hanging from the ceiling in Rob's yeah, bedroom. I, I was so happy when I saw that. You don't know what that <laughs> meant to me. Just, just well, that somebody at that point remembered Space 1999 well enough to put it in their film. I think it we was, had Guardians of Peary in it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I think you you guys are touching on something. You know, in terms of licensed toys, we used to get toys that weren't very. They didn't look very similar to the shows. But getting that Mattel Eagle, the proportions were somewhat correct. Right. And it, it came perfect. with action figures. Yeah, it really was. And then there was the Dinky Eagle, the, right. the two the Dinky Eagles, one. the diecast, the green and blue one, and then the red and white freighter eagles. And those <laughs> things were the fact that you were able to get those and they were so good compared to like the Dinky Enterprise from Star Trek that didn't look anything like the Enterprise. Yes. There you go. Ah, you, there you, you go. did that. You swapped out the freighter eagle. That's a combination of the two different eagles to make it look like. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I did that too. I was like, well, I got to make it look like the real eagle. It's got to be all white. Mark, I got to send you the photo of me uh, Christmas morning, 1976, holding that eagle the same way that Brian Johnson held it in uh, an interview with, I believe it was Millimeter Magazine. Uh, oh, I, I thought you were going to say. Uh, 
the way Peter Billingsley held his BB gun in a Christmas story. <laughs> but, um, um, it was just the best great. ever. Best ever. That's so, so awesome. And, I, I want to see it. And I remember that. That I remember when I first saw that. I saw it at a department store that had a collection of dinky yep. toys. I have him downstairs too. He's awesome. <laughs> so good. And it was like 15 bucks. My dad's like, I'm not going to spend $15 and buy you some die cast Eagle. So I had to wait to get it for like my birthday or so. I guess it was Christmas, you know, that, and, and, but they were great. And it had, it, so having that kind of great licensed property, I'm, I'm always banging on about how the licensed toys of the seventies were not good. Right. Some of the Mego stuff, like the planet of the ape stuff was good. And the, the Enterprise from Star Trek for the Mego toys, you're like, what the hell is this? What <laughs> yeah. is this Star Trek bridge? But when you got those Space 1999 toys, mm-hmm. they, were they were it, man. They didn't disappoint. No, they didn't. They didn't. I still love them. I have somewhere behind me. I don't, I don't know if, if you'd be able to see it, but I have the Amsco Cardboard Moonbase Alpha diorama. I had that one. That was oh, awesome. Did, I love you have, it. did you have the Cardboard Eagle? Oh, I remember that. The, the the one that's made out of like straws? Yeah. Yes. Hold on one second. <laughs> <laughs> Coming right up. <laughs> and remember, you can watch this on the Electric Now streaming app. <laughs> this is an episode you want to watch on video and not just listen to on audio. It's Victor. Oh, there he is. Oh, there, yes. Kids loved playing Victor Bergman. <laughs> oh. I'm destroying my office. <laughs> Now you can take uh, chase David Jansen with this one <laughs> Victor Bergman action figure. I want someone to custom make a uh, Commissioner Simmons. Uh, there it is. There it is. Oh, oh my God. I remember that. Wow. It was horrible was, yet wonderful. <laughs> I was excited. I just bought the Hawk from, um, you know, what is it, 1013 or, or from the Jerry Anderson uh, company Anderson that does all – so I was very excited to get the Hawks. So oh, and I love the Hawks. Yeah, it's a great ship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. six sixteen twelve. Sixteen twelve right. is putting those out, and they're doing the 16, original twelve. Yeah, yeah, they're doing one with that's just all white, and then one that's got the orange, the War Games, and they're finally doing Dragon's Domain with the yep. eagle with the the thing that comes off. Right. Yes. Oh, I know. If only I'd had that to play with when I was five or six years old, man. I know. That's why I have to. My girlfriend's like, "Why do you keep buying the same ship?" And I'm like, "This isn't the same <laughs> ship. They're all different." Like this one, and she's she's looking and she's like, "I don't understand." I go, "This one has the glider from the immunity syndrome on right. it, you know." And right. This is from New Adam, New Eve. You know, come on, man. This was one of our jokes in the Starship Smackdown that the moon is filled with eagles. The whole center has been hollowed out and is just filled with thousands of eagle ships. They never run out. Never run out. <laughs> well, you know, that was so one of the I, things I covered in my book. I said, it's not as bad as you think. It's not, they're, they're, you know, they, they don't lose as many as you think they do. A lot of them crash and can be recovered. They crash. Yes. <laughs> so, John, I got to ask you before we wrap up, you know, we live in a time of IP fever where the most unlikely shows you could ever imagine are being resurrected. I mean, it's 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 crazy. Every day you hear about something else that you're like, what? Really? They're bringing that back? So do you think there's a future for Space 1999, which has seemingly its expiration date in the title? <laughs> you know, w- could there be a, a, a resurrection of Space 1999 in our future, you think? Yeah, and call it like Destination Moon Base Alpha or right. uh, Space 2099 or something. Yeah. I, I mean, I do, I, I, I actually... You know, because I, I do think we're sort of becoming, we're having that point again in our culture, I think, where we're closer to some of these 
uh, ideas about our end and, you know, and, and about like, where are we going? We're thinking much more about these things um, than maybe we have in, 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 in the past, in the uh, past 20 years. So I think we're heading more into a meditation again of dystopias and apocalypse and things like that, just because of what we have lived through. And at one point I, I was sort of against it because I, I'm, I'm sort of a, you know, I, I love the classic film grammar thing, look of Space 1999. So when I wrote the book, you know, I just, I'd studied film. So I thought I was like this really smart guy. And I thought, I'm going to like apply film grammar and analyze the, the episodes by film grammar. And, and they're beautiful that way, like with the yeah. camera angles and the slow motion. I'm beautiful. And I, and I thought, oh, well, you know, if they do it now, they'll never do it that way. But I kind of but now I'm kind of of the mind that maybe that's OK. Maybe it is OK to, to not do it that way and to do it in a way more of 2020, um, you know, it would, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, one of the books I'm working on now is horror films of the two thousands. So I, I have to deal with the Rob Zombie remake of Halloween and things right. like that. And, and, and I've gotten to this mindset of just, you know, I'm going to be an old cranky guy. If I can't, if I can't be open-minded to these remakes, some, some will work and some won't, but I have to take them on their own terms. You know, I, I loved what space 1999 was, and that's never going to go away for me. I mean, it still exists. Right. It will always exist as it was. If there are elements of that story that again fit into the culture and where we are culturally, but it needs to be updated to pull in new audiences, but but it would still speak to us in that sort of 1999 way, then I think it well, would- Let's see how you feel when they say that Maya had a Psycon sister we knew nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and they'll randomly change the sex of all the characters and stuff. Right. You know, well, you know, <laughs> I've actually read a few iterations of. I've I've got a couple of different Space nineteen ninety nine scripts that people. One very recently, actually, that people were trying to sell, right. and it was kind of like reading. Uh, it, when I was reading screenplays for a living back in the early nineties, I read a lot of versions of Speed Racer. Okay, and they would always try and make it Days of Thunder. <laughs> because that was the only thing. So it had nothing to do with Speed Racer. And I think a lot of the problem with Space 1999 is they're really embracing the sort of space battles, Star Wars of it all, when really you would need somebody like David Cronenberg mm -hmm. to come in and, and embrace the more event horizon nature of what Space 1999 could right. be. Right. You know, and, and if you could figure out like somebody would would like I could see like Jason Blum uh, over at Blumhouse, somebody taking space 19, like if M. Night Shyamalan or something said, you know, <laughs> why don't we do and, and, and bring in the horror elements, then you could really have something. Yes. You know, if you really made it and embrace the love crafty and nature of the space that's portrayed in space, at least the first season. Right. And go in that direction. You could really have something because, you know, the stuff that they've been trying to develop it's all warring factions and the 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 one of the scripts i read the moon doesn't get blown out of orbit until the very end of the movie mm. and it's 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 more very much more like the expanse okay and things like that yeah. and the, it, it i'm like yeah no see it, that's why you're never going to get it to you're never going to sell this iteration of it to me i, I think go ahead oh i, I was gonna say I, you know i i've seen some people propose stories and uh, it seems to me a lot of them all want to justify like how things happen, like a wormhole opens and it travels, the moon travels along a wormhole or some alien technology is ignited that pushes them into warp speed. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I do think the one place culturally 
where we're not, which would benefit Space 1999. Space 1999 never felt any pressure or obligation to explain everything or even half of what happened, right? You know, and and that's why I like to rewatch it because I said, I'm like, uh, you know, you can watch an altered state, so to speak. Like, whoa, I never saw that before. What the heck is going on? Um, You know, but I think audiences today want everything sort of answered for them as to like, why did this happen? Why did this happen? And, and, and so I, I do feel like, you know, culturally, we're not at the right point there because I, I, I think I, I like I love the idea of a Cronenberg or um, uh, M. Night Space 1999. But, I, you know, I don't want them to explain everything. I don't want to I don't need the you know, I don't need the moon thing ex- explained, like just do three or four episodes like they did before along the journey that hint at why it happened. So you really want a David Lynch Space 1999. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> <you're saying. laughs> <laughs> lost highway lost moon <laughs> right. oh yeah i mean i i don't know I, I i think it really does need the right uh you know talent behind it and i think someone needs to kind of be free i mean you remember i said that that you know critics said it was committed like a crime that those those writers producers they created 24 stories you know without having any contact sort of outside that bubble I mean, mm-hmm. I would love to see someone like Cronenberg or Lynch or somebody take that on and do it like that again and, and just go for it, you know, and, and not be subject to the whims of what people say, you know, you need a monster, a hairy monster this week or right. whatever, or that you have to answer all these things. I mean, I, I don't think as a storyteller, we're obligated to answer every single question that comes up in a story. I think, I think mystery is okay. And I think not knowing is okay. And, and sometimes it's in that gap that art is really created. Well, I got to say, John, it was great having you on the show. And uh, this exceeded all my expectations for an episode about Space 1999. <laughs> so kudos to you. Uh, yes, that's and, a compliment. And, no, 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 it absolutely is. And uh, if people want to read the book, it's, it's still in print with McFarlane. And you it can is. also read the it Kindle is. version of Exploring Space 1999. You have a very vast and pr- you're a very prolific author. So you have a very vast uh, bibliography. So people <laughs> want to read more of your work on a lot of their favorite genre subjects. Uh, they can go to your website, johnkenthmuir.com. You no, know, I have to admit, I haven't updated that thing since like 2004. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay then. <laughs> do, a, do a search. Go to Amazon. <laughs> do, do Amazon. Do Amazon. I, I have a blog um, and it's a terrible URL. Just, just go to Google and type John Kenneth Muir blog and you'll find me. <laughs> there you go thank you all this this has been a true pleasure to spend this time with you tonight great honor sir so glad to talk to you as well yeah uh, thanks for joining us tonight and uh, hopefully uh you'll have to you have to come back and we'll we'll talk about Battlestar galactica well that sounds great darren will let me (laughs) (laughs) okay john take care have a great night stay safe thanks thank you all so much thank you thank you thank you bye-bye it just makes me remember um, in the later years that uh, Space 1999 was on, um, whenever I would hear that opening of the ITC, uh, uh, you know, billboard, I was hoping it would be Space 1999, but later on it turned out that it was the Muppet Show. <laughs> And I was, I was horrifically disappointed. Not that I don't love the Muppets, I do, but I liked Space 1999 more. So, 
this is my little tragedy. You know what is so funny? You saying that just reminded me of something I haven't thought about in, you know, 45 years. Um, when I was a kid, um, we were members of this beach club in, 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 in Rockaway. Uh, uh, it was where they filmed the Flamingo Kid. Mm-hmm. And and I had this friend, Alan, and, um, you know, you know, when we, I was probably, you know, like seven, eight years old, whatever, nine years old. And we would, you know, we would play all kinds of like Star Trek and stuff. But we, there were these chaises that you would sit on, like where you could read and they would go up like this and down. So we would play Space 1999 and we'd get on these chaises and <laughs> pretend we were like piloting an eagle. Oh my God. <laughs> and so we had these two chaises alongside each other. Nice. Okay, Eagle One, ready to launch. Eagle Two, ready to launch. <laughs> and we would play Space 1999 because I that was the one space, I had the Space 1999 water gun, right. which, you know, was the staple gun. It was they, great. They had that yeah. great, great. And, you know, I, I just loved, um that 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 version of the phaser because i loved everything i put through the star trek prism oh that's their phaser that's their shuttlecraft you know that's you know their communicator but it was all very inventive and cool yeah and um and and uh you know it's like space 1999 never resonated for me the way star trek did but it definitely was sort of a seminal science fiction show of my childhood it was definitely fun in terms of how we reacted to it, not necessarily yes. while watching it, but it's the feeling that we would have pretending to be in that world, you know? And the, I like it better now as an adult than I did as a kid. Uh, well, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but the great thing is that it, it filled up that, you know, lean time in between Star Trek and the movies. Yeah. You know? Uh, the the seventies was a desert uh, in terms of uh, science fiction, except for a, a couple things, which was Space nineteen ninety nine, the animated show, and uh, a little bit of uh, Planet. Well, seventy eight you had the uh, Battlestar Galactic, and seventy nine you had the first season of Buck Rogers. But I do feel like every attempt to do science fiction other than that was such a bust. You would get excited about Fantastic Journey. Oh, it's the Bermuda Triangle, right. and it's terrible. Right. Or Logan's run the TV series, and it's terrible. Right. She's oh. no Jenny Agutter. I know Jenny Agutter, and you're no Jenny Agutter. <laughs> and, you know, Planet of the Apes, the TV series. And they were all so thoroughly mediocre. Yeah. And, you know, Space 1999, it, it just, it didn't feel cookie cutter. Right. Right. Even as a kid, you knew they were doing something different. And, yeah, maybe it was a little slow and a little lethargic. Part of that was the Britishness of it. Yeah. And part of it was just. Uh, you know, because it had a deliberate pace. It wasn't Star Trek. And it felt but there was so something alien. about it. It felt so alien yes, and, and creepy and mysterious. And it was a completely different feeling than anything else watching uh, on TV or movies. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if you saw, we did a sh- uh, question last, last week where we said to um, the listeners, you know, what shows should we be doing going forward? And someone said, you should do an original series holiday special had there been an original series holiday special so i i want to try and figure out a way to do that i think that could be really fun if there wasn't a pandemic it would be so great for us if we could like go out to a bar and just do like the old playboy after dark version of a star trek holiday special but um (laughs) we got to think about that one there are actually some other really great ideas too for for shows but that's one i really gravitated Aren't we coming up on the two-year anniversary of when we did our greatest episodes? We are. And I wonder, 
I mean, there's no point doing greatest episodes again because it's not like there are any other great episodes that have been added to that list. No, um, but it's, I can't believe it's been two years. Uh, but yeah, it. I know. And we have to think about what we're going to do for the holidays because every year, you know, two years ago, we did the best episodes. Last year, we did greatest Star Trek moments. So I really don't want to do worst Star Treks because I, yeah. although that would no. probably be a fun show, um, but I don't want to do worst Star Trek. Um, and also that would open a can of worms, I think. But uh, but I do think that um, uh, maybe we do the movies and, you know, we rank the movies or something. I don't know. So we'll have to talk I think about talking that. about the movies is not a bad idea, but, but uh, we're not going to decide yeah. it here. No, no, no. We're, we're, it won't be decided here. Exactly. We have to wait till we reach the council chamber, chamber, chambers of Babel. Uh, but listen, um, this is great, Rob. Thank you so much for bringing your expertise. Oh, what a and treat your this was. Into, and your toys. You know, so, I, I, it's it's this. I can't believe that they just. I mean, I've had this for a couple months. Crazy. I, it's I just. Know. It's so weird that they're and they sixteen twelve is just killing it. Now I keep doing- buying stuff for them, and I hate myself for it. Rob, uh, like, what do I need with this? <laughs> in in other realities, that is a, a musical instrument in a Cuban dance band. <laughs> <laughs> the Buena Vista Social Club. Uh, <laughs> no, it, but I mean, they're doing a hell of a job. You know, all the, they just shipped all their UFO, the interceptors, and the the the, the uh, flying saucers too. I mean, they're they're they do a really the quality of these things is really really good. I'm just waiting for they're my full size lock and uh, and laser gun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I ordered that too. I can't wait. And it's great. Well, I guess the it was packaging is cool. because of the pandemic. I, I probably. But uh, yeah, the packaging is great. And I look, I'm I'm look, I can't wait. I'm excited about that. I ordered the war games. I ordered the hawk. You yep. know, so uh you gotta have it. Gotta have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Rob, you have your um you know, we can't finish the show without you showing us what what you brought with you, which of course Starlog used to advertise this in the back pages of the magazine, which was something, again, I never ordered as a kid. It was be out of my price range, but you were able to acquire one. This is actually f- from what? 77, I think it came out, 78. Yep. This is the actual Alpha Moonbase technical manual that they made. The only bummer about this, I mean, it's full of, it's really, really cool. I mean, if you look at it, it's got all these notes, just like this Franz Joseph technical manual. It's got like wow, very much a, so of the launch pad. You can see the the <laughs> paper is a little yellow, but but this is the actual thing. And then it would have it had fold out schematics of Moonbase yeah. Alpha. The only thing that it doesn't have is the actual blueprints of the Eagle because they published those in an actual issue of Starlog. Uh, so they're oh, not yeah. in here. You know, okay. they had that. So that's the only thing missing. And they said they were going to make um, like, you know, more additions and add to this, but they never did. They never did. Well, but, maybe I mean, one day, Rob. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> but I look at this thing and it's, it looks like it's brand new aside from the yellowing of the paper. This thing is amazing it's it's, uh, it's october 1977 this is 43 years old i mean that's crazy to me and i've and and all the pages haven't if, if only we out. were right i know i mean yeah and it's funny yeah i mean i've been holding carrying this thing around for 43 years like i don't know what the point of it is <laughs> you know when i was a kid i obsessed over these things now it's just like it's cool to have rob just in case 
Just, just well, you know, case. it's funny. I was going to ask you, but now I'm thinking maybe we should save this for the holiday. Uh, you know what your favorite episode of Space 1999 is. But I wonder if maybe we should do, you know, greatest science fiction episodes ever. Star Trek Space 1999, Galactica, Firefly, you know, you know, do the ultimate sci-fi countdown, you know? Yeah, that I mean, I would... UFO has one of my favorite episodes of yeah. Any show I mean, ever. we I don't think we could potentially I don't think we could do an order. I think it would be the top hundred, but I don't think we could like actually put it in any kind of order. No, but I I think um that might be the worth worth doing, you know, uh, because yeah, that, we could really find really some esoteric stuff. Um, yeah, you know. By the way, what he was saying, I have to tell you guys, I've been watching more Voyagers because I didn't see all of Voyager. Because remember, we were so adamantly against it at Sci-Fi Universe. I was like, and I have to say, the last three, four, three or four seasons had some really interesting, enjoyable episodes mm. that I've been catching I, I, up I on. I need to watch it again. I, 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 you know, I also had a very, you know, I, I, I'm not a fan, but I know so many people I respect who do like the show. I, I think the challenge is, you know, there are some great, hidden gems but the problem is you got to sort of slog through those long 24 26 episode seasons to get to them and it's just that's hard yeah well you know know, for every really classic there's i mean john ottman by the way did you know that john ottman is a producer on star trek discovery this season i saw that yeah is he an editor or is he a writer i don't know if they had him come in like he's got no he's a he's just listed as a producer i gotta contact him because when I saw that, you know, he's a massive Star Trek fan, but I'm wondering, yeah, yeah, did they, did they hire him to like come in and save episodes as an editor? Because I wonder, I don't know. I, I mean, I thought it was crazy that he's shown up as a, a producer on the show. It's crazy. It hasn't. The show's terrible, by the way. It's just well, we we celebrate the love here on Trek right. we, we so we're not going to get into. We're not recording, are we? Yeah, we are. We're, no, we're, we are we're recording. We're finishing up the episode. Oh, I thought you were editing this. Sorry, I didn't realize. No, I no, no. That would require work. So anyway, on behalf of Robert, <laughs> Darren, and myself, I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of uh, of Inglorious Trexperts. Um, as always, new episodes debut Fridays at 10 o'clock, our new time slot, where you can wa- listen to third season episodes of uh, Inglorious Trexperts. Also listen to our sister podcast. If you're interested in modern Star Trek, Disco Nights is back hosted by Chase Masterson and Ryan Britt. If you're a Star Wars fan, check out The Rebel and the Rogue. And of course, if you're a fan of cool, unproduced movies, check out my favorite podcast, Best Movies Never Made. And there may even be new episodes of the 430 movie, depending on what week you're listening to this. Who knows? Find out. Or check us out on the Electric Now video streaming app, which is free at your favorite app store. So those are all things for you to do. You have your homework assignment over the holidays. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, we're just going to get out of here. So stay uh, away, stay away from area one. I want to thank, <laughs> I want to thank Peter Holmstrom, our production coordinator and archivist. Uh, also uh, Bill Ritter for making it sound great, even in the middle of a pandemic and our producer, Natalie Miscali. So until next Friday, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course, And as Darren says, stay away from Area 1. Shh. Engage.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.